Amen. What a, what a blessing to be able to sing that hope that we have in and through and because of Jesus Christ. Many of you remember Pastor Josh wrote that for us last year to go along with our theme. And then at the end of the year, he wrote that additional stanza to go for Christmas. And his beautiful stanza, and I love that phrase, that when the promises of old lie in darkness and the cold. You know, Christmas, obviously it's a special time of year. I recognize that, that for some, it maybe is a hard time of year. Uh, there may be, uh, for some, even in here this morning, those watching via the live stream, that this, you're already anticipating this may be a hard Christmas. It may be the first Christmas without a loved one. It may be that something has occurred even in recent days that is casting long shadow over this time of year. In a time that is typically looked at with anticipation and excitement, maybe there's some dread. Maybe there is some anxiety that accompanies it. Whatever the case may be, wherever you may find yourself in that mix this morning, that anticipation, that yearning, that anxiety, there is hope. There is hope. And we sang a few moments ago too, a wonderful hymn, and in there is that phrase, how unwavering our hope. Why is it that Christians talk so much of hope? Why is it that for those who uh, maybe uh, recognize or observe uh, Advent each year, this Sunday, this, this week, it, the, the focus is hope. Well, because I believe God put it in the human heart to look for something better, to recognize that there was a great need, to recognize there, there was an emptiness, there, there was a hole, as it were, that only God could fill, a need that only God could meet. And that hope that God put there as a result of his answer, his prophecy, his promise to the tragedy in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. That one day, one day, there would come a Redeemer. The prophets talked of it and the people looked for it. This morning I want to invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. In these next few weeks together, we are going to look at what, we, what I've called the characters of Christmas. I told you last week that's obviously not an original title because my son is preaching the same series, different messages under that title <laughs> this year. But there are a lot of people in the Christmas story, are there not? And we, we're not, we don't have time, I and mean, we'd have to like start in October to hit them all. Maybe that's not a bad idea some year, but anyway. But this year we're going to look at just a handful of them, just
just a few. How do you pick which ones? Well, can you go wrong with any of them, quite frankly? I mean, the truth is, and I've done it, I, I've preached a message on Herod. You know, we always think of the wise men and the shepherds and the angels and, of course, you know, Mary and Joseph and the Christ child. But there's a lot to be learned from even those who reject Christmas. Cautionary tale. It's one that it is so sad because they've rejected the hope. But I want us this morning to look here in Luke 1. Because as we begin in Luke's gospel, and Luke is an interesting character. He was, we know from the pages of scripture, he was, of course, a very educated man. He was a physician by trade. He was uh, Paul's personal physician. He admits in this gospel that is attributed to him and then also the book of Acts. Um, He's obviously somewhat of a historian, but uh, obviously they're both inspired and the Holy Spirit speaks through him. But he comes at it from a little bit different perspective. And as I was preparing, again, this this message, looking through it, the first few verses kind of struck me. And and I wonder, how many times do we ever pay attention to the opening sentences of Luke's gospel? And he says there, in verse 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I think he's kind of speaking there and understanding and recognizing the hope that still is there inside of believers. The hope now of the return, the anticipation of it. But Luke here admits, he says, you know, there have been so many things talked about from people who were there who saw it. And he, he admits, I wasn't one of them, but I've heard so much about it. And he says, I've been burdened to write down, as he says it here, as it's interpreted for us, in an orderly fashion, an orderly account. Why? So that you may have certainty. So that you may have certainty. Because isn't that really what God wants for us? Is that certainty, that faith, that confidence in Christ. That confidence that comes because God made a promise and he honored the promise. There were prophecies and they were fulfilled. There was a need and it was met. There was hope and it was realized. In this chapter... He introduces us here to the first couple of characters, husband and wife. For those of you who are participating in our growth groups on Wednesday night, we see a lot of echoes of Hannah here in, uh, in this character of Elizabeth. It says, in the days of Herod the king, I'm in verse 5, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. and There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. You must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. My goodness, can you imagine? Can you imagine what it must have been like for this man Advanced in years, as the Bible tells us. And he's just going about the duties that have been given to him there in the temple. And all of a sudden, literally a miracle, an angel appears to deliver this message. And to stir within him a renewed hope. A hope that no doubt he and his wife had shared for many, many years and had just never come about. And now all of a sudden he's telling him and delivering to him this message that just ignites it all again. To play a horrible game with his emotions? No. No, but to fulfill yet another prophecy. That there would be one who would go before. You see, the the clock had been started. The prophecies from Daniel hinged upon that declaration to go back, to rebuild the walls, to reestablish Jerusalem. And we read of that in the book of Nehemiah. When that happens, the clock begins to tick. See, a lot of times in our In our world today, as we sit here as believers, we have this promise that one day Jesus will return. But there has been nothing that tells us, and this will be what starts the clock. Lots of people like to talk about, well, everything's fulfilled. He could come. Yeah, he could come back at any moment. But will present circumstances, you know, bring that on? I don't know. I look with anticipation. I I mean, I would say with you, even so, Lord, come quickly. I mean, I love Christmas, but I would be just fine if he came back today. (laughs) We'll celebrate Christmas up there. 
but a clock had been started. And the reality is, they were coming. These people, we, we get dropped into history in Luke 1. And we find ourselves at the end of what has become recognized as the silent years. 400 years of history where God had gone quiet. They just spent that time, if they were paying attention at all, reading the prophets of old. Malachi was the last one. Nehemiah and Malachi are written about the same time. And after that, it just goes quiet. There are no prophets. There are people who really are, are unsettled in, in many ways. There are people living under, under bondage. They had seen empires go and come, and, and now they find themselves under the Roman Empire. And with every passing year, there is this anticipation. There, there is this, this building sense of urgency. If they had been doing their math, they would have known it was right on the doorstep. And I think many of them sensed it. And these two people, this husband and wife, this woman in particular, I believe there was this sense, and, and certainly there were the normal human desires to have a family, especially to have a son in those time period, in that time period. We see much of this lady, Elizabeth, her name means God is my oath. Every year at this time, we, we talk about, we hear talked about the, you know, Christmas miracle. Well, I think the reason for that is because Christmas began with a miracle. Began with a few of them. But obviously one in particular. God is a God of miracles. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Or stated another way, with God, all things are possible. Whatever he promises will happen. Whatever he desires will come to pass. And the thing we have to be reminded of and keep in focus is that everything God does is for his glory and for our good. And Elizabeth's story is certainly proof of that. There's a reason many ladies have Elizabeth as part of their name. Because it's a name that is honored. It's time honored. It's cherished. She was a worshiper of God. We, we see here a picture of her lineage. She's a daughter of Aaron. Zechariah, her husband, is of the course of Abijah. We know from, from, as we continue reading on, we discover that she is a cousin of Mary, mother of Jesus on, on Mary's maternal side. John the Baptist, this baby that is, is promised here in Jesus, are second cousins. And what we see in this, what we will see in these characters of Christmas over these next few weeks is God is at work in the lives of people just like us. You're going to find yourself, I think, identifying with, with one or, or several or all of, of these, different aspects maybe of them. 
But all of it continues to remind us that, that God is working. And he could have chosen to do it any way he wanted, but in his omniscience and in his sovereignty, he chose to work in and through people just like you and just like me. And so as we consider this woman here for just a few minutes quickly, this woman for whom God chose to work a miracle, I just want us to see three very simple things, three aspects of her story. We see here, first of all, her reputation. There's, there's some very practical applications here for us. Notice in verse 6. In verse 6 it says they're both righteous before God. Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're both righteous before God. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Someone has said... Reputation is the shadow, character is the tree. This woman's reputation was one of faithfulness, of piety, not in a bad sense, in a, in a wonderful sense, of trust, of hope. Why, is, why was that uh, how she was known? Because in the quiet times, in, in the times when she was alone, in those times where maybe she was alone with her thoughts and maybe there, was, there were struggles, deep in her heart there was faith, there was trust, there was belief that God could make a way. There were plenty of people, no doubt, in her life, around her, in her, maybe even in, within her friends group and maybe with, even in her family. who had begun to cast great doubt and question and maybe even had turned their backs on the promises of God. But this woman, she remains faithful. She and her husband together faithfully serving. And I mean, you, ha you, you have to make some assumptions here, but I think just by the very simple statements before us in verse 6, what is fleshed out there is you have a husband and a wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and here that God has brought them together. And when he's discouraged, she encourages him. And when she is downcast, he, he helps her and supports her. And together they've walked this path of life for many, many years, continuing to faithfully serve. The Bible says they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Literally, faithfully doing what God had called them to do. They were righteous and they were faithful. You see, the one does follow the other. Everybody tries to do the best they can, but the reality is within their hearts, there was this trust, there was this faith, there was this belief, and it came out in their lives. And as I've said, there's these echoes of, of Hannah. And like Hannah of the Old Testament, she remains faithful as Elizabeth does despite the personal pain and quite frankly, the social humiliation that it was of being childless. What brings them to this point? 
I think we see, as we just discussed last week in our growth groups, I think we see providence at work here. God's hand is working and directing. And Zechariah is given a high honor. The Bible says that as the lot fell upon him to burn incense. Verses 8 and 9, this is a symbol of the prayers of the nation going up to heaven. And and the, the picture's painted there for us. The people are outside in the courts, and it's the time of the worship service where they're praying before God, and a priest goes into the temple, and he lights the incense, and as the smoke goes up, it is the the picture of those prayers ascending to heaven, and this was a high honor. We know from Old Testament law that obviously he's he's of the tribe of Levi, but more so than that, he's a descendant of Aaron. Because every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. The priest came from the line of Aaron. And this is tracked back all the way for him. And and so he is serving in that way. And and what they would do is there was actually 24 divisions of priests. And to carry out the duties around a, a calendar year, each one was given a segment to serve. They serve two weeks a year, each group. They go and serve for a week, and then they go about their normal lives and duties and responsibilities, and then they would be chosen, their time would come up, and they'd go back, and they would serve and do these special functions in the temple. And when they would get there, the division of duties for every day and so on and so forth would be made. And as God deemed it to be so, Zechariah was chosen to burn incense on this particular day. God could have sent the messenger angel Gabriel to tell him this information anyway at any time. Why did he wait till here? Why did it matter? Well, I think, again, I think God in his sovereignty, God in his providence, these people, this this man, his wife, together, they had been praying earnestly for years and years that God would answer the greatest need of their heart to have a child, to have a son. And so God arranged it that during this particular act of service that focused so intently on prayer, that God would answer that prayer in a profound way. Again, in our cynicism, we can be dismissive of them, well, I mean, God could have done it. Let's not read too much into it. And, and there's, there's some wise counsel in some of that. You do have to be careful, you know, trying to read too much into what God is doing. But, boy, when you understand the culture, when you understand what's going on here, and I mean, good grief, is, is there not a better time? And we look at this and we say, well, you know, I'm faithful and I, I believe and so on and so forth. Well, I think the question also has to be asked, so what are you doing about it? What's it look like in your life? Their reputation were people who, though bearing a great burden, though struggling with some really big trials of life, they don't get embittered. They don't get cynical. But they stay faithful. They stay hopeful. And that is their testimony. And quite frankly, what what is yours? What is your testimony? God delights in blessing his faithful children. 
God has preserved for us the testimony of Elizabeth, but the Bible also reveals to us that that not all was well, and though she had a tremendous reputation, she carried this burden. That burden, of course, was being childless. Every woman wanted to bear a son in the hope that that son would be the Messiah. Those who were faithful, I mean, this, this was consuming. They knew what the prophets had said. I mean, they, a Christmas season never goes by, right? I mean, we end up in Isaiah 9 and passages like that. We still draw hope and encouragement from those passages. How much so these people before Jesus is born? I mean, the prophets have said, a son will be born. And they're listening, they're watching. And the anticipation is growing. And here, Elizabeth, year after year, time after time, there's no child born. And one commentator, Dr. MacArthur, says that in this culture, it's seen, quite frankly, even as a sign of divine disfavor. I mean, that's a terrible way to put it. And I think, quite frankly, most of the time that was just wrong, but, but that's just how culture saw it. Of course, we know, again, she's in some pretty good company throughout the pages of Scripture, isn't she? Women like Sarah and Hannah and Rachel, the mother of Samson, now Elizabeth. Because even those who are faithful to the Lord have burdens to bear. Faithfulness does not ensure a life of ease. We don't serve God so that everything will be easy. If that's your motivation for service, check it. You're going to be really disappointed. Your faith is going to be shaken. Because you don't serve God so that it will be easy for you. And yet they continue to serve. God allows, divinely allows, this burden to be carried. The reality also is that trouble doesn't always equal discipline. You know, so many times in our lives, even in that culture, we know, remember the, the time, and obviously we're jumping ahead now here in, on the chronology, but remember that day after in, when Jesus is ministering and they come up across the the man born, born blind and, and lame, and they say, who sinned, him or his parents? That was just their mindset. I mean, if something tragic happens, you must have blown it somewhere. You must have really messed up, and God is, this is discipline. There's no discipline happening here that we can see. God just in his sovereignty and his providence is working everything out. Why? For his glory, and yes, for their good. As temporal people, that's a really hard thing for us to process and to accept. Sometimes the hard times, sometimes the difficult things, the trials, the trouble of life, it just means that God is fixing to do something really, really special. Do we trust him for that? Do we keep serving and trusting, and waiting, and hoping. 
Elizabeth had a sterling reputation. But that didn't prevent her from dealing with this reproach, this burden of being childless. But in spite of this, God was, of course, in total control. And in his time, there comes a very special reward. That's what we see there in verses 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, fear not. Don't be afraid. I believe I've preached here the series before that I take out of the book of Luke, and this happens to be the first one. There's a series of fear nots throughout the book of Luke that are a wonderful study. This is the launching pad. I would have been afraid too. Zechariah goes in. I mean, he's probably, you know, he's been instructed whether or not he's done it before, but, but he certainly has been instructed. He knows what, where things are. He knows what's supposed to happen. And all of a sudden he gets in there where he's supposed to be by himself and he's not by himself. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. What are you doing here? <laughs> I don't know what he looked like. He's obviously masculine. We know it's Gabriel. The Bible's going to tell us that. I don't know if he had wings. Doesn't matter. I don't know if he was glowing. Doesn't matter. What matters is God had sent him, and he had a message. And the message was, as we would say, don't freak out. I've got good news. You're going to have a son. Now, this is an incredible blessing and an an incredible reward, as it were. And He's going to struggle with that. He's going to struggle accepting that. We know the story. We don't have time to flesh all of it out, but he, he has some doubt about that, and he's not going to speak now for the next nine months. But God's making a promise, yet another one. And what he says here in this is that there's going to be a son, but then there, there's so much more to it, so much more of the blessing that's going to come. It's, it's not just that you're going to have a little boy, but, but God has some very special things in store for this young man. And he says his name's going to be John. That was important. He's not going to be Zechariah Jr. He's not going to be named after his grandfather or, you know, some great-great-grandfather. The people struggle with that because when it comes time after, you know, the eighth day and the naming and the ceremony and all that stuff comes, they're going to say, what's his name? And Elizabeth said, his name is John. People are like, what? First of all, you're the wife. You're not supposed to be doing that. Second of all, nobody in your family's named John. Where is this coming from? And they look at Zechariah. He hadn't spoken in nine months. And he scribbles it down. It's John. Why? Because his name means God has shown grace. God has been gracious. And because, oh, by the way, it fulfilled another prophecy. A prophecy from Malachi. Because as he says, he is going to be like Elijah. Well, they all knew about Elijah. 
He was born of different stuff. A man who took a stand no matter what the opposition. A man who God used to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. Even in the face of persecution, and we know the end of this story, John the Baptist is going to face persecution. It's going to cost him his life, his, his, his boldness for the gospel is going to, and the truth. You see, by lineage, John would have been destined for the priesthood. But God had a different plan for him. In verses 14 through 17, again, this blessing, yes, immediately to, John, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. I mean, this baby has been born now, and it's a healthy baby. And, and they're looking forward to what the years are going to bring and, and how they're going to, to rear him and train him and, and so on and so forth. But they also know there's going to come a day when things are going to change. I can only imagine the conversations that they must have had through the years in the anticipation of how all of this was going to happen. Do you remember that day, Zechariah would say, do you remember that day I went in the temple and I came out and we, we found out about having, having John? And he says, you'll have joy and gladness. Yeah, absolutely, in the immediate because the prayer was answered. But, but then even on because what we know of this man no doubt there was just day after day of joy and gladness in that home because this was a, a good young man, a, a faithful young man, a righteous young man. Zechariah and Elizabeth are bringing him up and teaching him and training him just like they had been told to do in Deuteronomy 6. No doubt they spoke of the things and promises of God when he rose up and when he, they laid, lay him down at night and when they walked by the way and when they sat in their home, they're talking about the things of God. It says he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. That's a pretty amazing promise. And yet, of course, it also comes true, we know. The angel tells him he's going to be what they understood to be a Nazarite. Certain restrictions are going to be placed on his life. It was important for Zechariah and Elizabeth at the outset of that life to observe these things. Ultimately, John himself is going to have to take the oath and, and follow through on it. And of course he does. It also says that he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit because he's going to need it. This wasn't just going to be something that you can teach him the nuts and bolts and just keep in, you know, instilling it in him and he'll do it. No, there's going to have to be a divine enabling and the angel says, and God's going to do that for him. God has a job for him. God has a plan for his life. And he's not just going to hope it happens. No, God's going to enable him to do it. It says that many Israelites will be brought back to God. We know that happened. John, in his preaching, he was unique. I mean, he lives out in the wilderness until it's time for his ministry to begin. And he comes back in, you know, and it's like camel hair and, you know, eating wild, uh, you know, locusts and honey and all the stuff. I mean, he, he had to have been a character. But boy, he had a message. A message that Messiah was coming, the king is coming. And people began to flock to him. And people began to believe. We, we hear of the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John and so on and so forth, right? 
I mean, this message was captivating hearts and minds. Why? Because there was this hope. There was this yearning. There was this anxiety. It was, as we sang, kind of the bleak midwinter for them. Here is this prophet. No one had been speaking like this for 400 years. And now here comes John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. Of course, the reality is, I mean, these two boys are growing up not very far apart in age. And many Israelites are brought back to God. And he goes before the Lord, as it says in verse 17, again fulfilling another prophecy of Malachi. And then the day comes that we know of well. And John is preaching yet again. And great crowds have again gathered. But the message that day was different. Because on that day, it's almost like he stops mid-sentence. And he looks to the back of the crowd and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't know, I don't think Zechariah and Elizabeth probably lived to see that day. But I believe they died with the confidence knowing it was coming. Because God had honored so many promises. What expectations and dreams do you have for your children? God has given you children. What is it that you desire for them? You know, across this room, there are people at all stages of life. Some of you are just beginning that child-rearing process. You're trying to figure it out as you go along, just like the rest of us did. And, you know, one of the blessings of having a church family is we can come alongside. We can have those conversations. And, and a lot of times the conversations are like, well, here's what we did. Don't do that. A few times, it's here's what we did, it worked for us. (laughs) Sometimes it worked for this one, didn't work so well for this one. But what are the desires and expectations and dreams you have for your children? I hope they are like Zechariah and Elizabeth, that, that they'll just serve God with their lives. That they'll love God and they'll serve God with their lives, whatever that means. I remember one day, Renee and I, one evening, Renee and I were sitting at dinner with a couple, professing Christians, and they were asking us, our boys were, I don't know, middle school or upper elementary, you know, they're in those formative years, and they had children about the same age, and they were asking us about, you know, so what do you want for your kids, and so on and so forth like that, and And Robert, by that time, had already expressed an interest in ministry, and we were talking about that and maybe what that might look like and so on. Obviously, I, you know, I I was following my father's, you know, example, as it were. God had had placed me in ministry, but my dad had been a pastor, and so we were talking somewhat about it, and the wife looked straight across the table. I mean, I can still remember, we're sitting at an Outback restaurant, and she looks across the table at us and goes, I hope my kids never have to go in ministry. And I got to tell you, my blood ran cold for a minute. 
Here, here's this, this family, this, this couple professing Christians. And, and quite frankly, people in our church would have looked and said, wow, they're really something. And she looks at me and she says, I hope my kids never have to go in. I hope my, my daughter, she had, I don't know, four or five daughters. She says, I hope, they ne- I hope none of them ever have to marry a pastor. Well, she's gotten her wish. But I just thought, what, what in the world? Why? Well, it'd be just so hard, and I want more for them. I want them to have stuff. What are we thinking? What if that had been Zechariah and Elizabeth? I want him to live to be old. I want him to have, you know, all this kind of stuff. He doesn't live so long. He doesn't really make it out of his mid-30s. He loses his head, right? He's martyred. And here we are 2,000 years later talking of him going, we need more men like that. So this character of Christmas brings us to some questions. How are you living before your children, before your family, before your friends, before your co-workers? Are you living faithfully, devotedly, walking obediently in the things that God has told us to do? Is that your reputation as it was for them? What burdens are you bearing? Do you understand that God knows? God cares? God can sustain you as you carry it. God can choose at some point to come and lift that burden. But whatever he chooses to do, are you willing to serve faithfully, continuing, no matter what? Will you trust God that he knows what is best for you? as well as for your children. Who wouldn't want a son who will turn a nation's hearts back to God? But not many of us want a son who will be beheaded at about 33 years of age. But what a testimony. What a hero. Why? Because as for God... His way is perfect. And I believe that Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know that they were faithful. We know they were devout. I do not doubt for a second that they had spent time, probably hours and hours, pouring through the Psalms and the prophets and and those passages. And they understood and they were trusting in those promises. I have to believe that that they knew what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 18. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. It's proven to be true. He's a buckler, a shield to all those who trust in him. And they saw that play out. Lived out in their lives, played out before them. Why? Because it was for God's glory and ultimately for their good. We 
we look at these records, we look at this character, I trust that it encourages us, I trust that it challenges us. But I hope also as we begin this Christmas season, it, it reminds us that we don't just look at them, we really look at the God they're serving. We, we don't see God in flesh right now, but we see those who are faithfully serving him. Through them we see him, we're reminded, we see these promises coming about. And so as we, here in just a moment, pause to follow the Lord's direction and to do this in remembrance of me, I want to encourage us just to give you an opportunity here for just a minute to quiet your hearts and minds before the Lord. And to prepare your heart, not just for this moment, but really for this Christmas season. Father, help me to follow you. Help me to serve you. Help me to trust you. Why? Because all of God's promises came true in the birth of Christ, in his death, his burial, his resurrection. And that's what we remember as we partake of these elements. This do in remembrance of me. Let's bow our heads, shall we? You pray quietly for just a moment. Our close, I will close our time together of prayer in just a minute.